Although there were divisions, one thing that I always kept coming back to in, in my research is how um, it never led to schism. And so when you look at other immigrant groups, such as the Mennonites, and you look at the Ukrainians and other immigrants to Canada and the United States, often in the history of uh, uh, several Orthodox churches, and especially in American Catholicism, uh, there is this issue of trusteeism, which is division caused by lay challenges to uh, church boards and clerical authority, yeah. um, and it leads to schism. Uh, but uh, throughout the period that I study, up in, into the late 90s, uh, although there are divisions uh, based in, in class and in, in the timing of immigration, the experiences that they had in Egypt as, as um, uh, the... Uh, society became much more polarized along religious lines, um, we, we don't encounter that same thing with the Copts. We don't encounter schism. Welcome to Coffee with Bishop Suriel, a podcast for all things Coptic. This is a conversation about authentic Christian faith, Coptic history, patristic writings, the family, arts and music, religious education, youth matters, evangelism, and much more. Bishop Suriel likes his coffee like he likes his conversation, light, sweet, and scorching. We'll be joined by an array of guests who'll share their experiences, their backgrounds, and their insights to bring about an exciting discussion, and we hope you agree. Enjoy the podcast, and please welcome our host, Bishop Suriel. As we're joined by Dr. Candice Lukasik and Dr. Michael Ekledios in an episode titled Coptic Immigration to the United States. Here's His Grace and our special guests. Your Grace. Irini Pasi, peace be with you. Welcome back to episode 13 of the podcast. And today we are discussing an interesting subject, and that is Coptic immigration to the United States. My two guests today are two Coptic Orthodox scholars, who have recently graduated from their PhD programs, and they are Dr. Candice Lukasik and Dr. Michael Ekladius. Welcome to both of you, and first of all, congratulations on this very fine achievement. I'm sure you are both relieved, and please tell us about your experiences of going through your respective PhDs and your feelings after graduation. Also, I hope you have your coffee <laughs> and you are ready for some stimulating conversations. And I know that both of you have some interesting coffee mugs. We'd love to see them and tell us a little bit about them. Um, okay, I guess I'll start. I got this actually last two summers ago when uh, there was the conference on cops and modernity oh, in yes. Melbourne, Australia. Uh, where I saw you, I think, last, Vedna. Um, and uh, it was a great conference, and I was able to pick up great souvenirs like this. That's wonderful. So what's on the coffee mug? Tell us a little bit about it. Um, it's, it's really just Australia, uh, a crocodile, um, which I, I love, but also koalas, uh, which are my favorite. 
Um, that was one of the highlights of that trip, aside from the conference and the delicious food uh, of Melbourne as well. So what what was your favorite meal in uh, Melbourne, Australia? Oh, that is that's quite hard uh, to to measure. Um, every breakfast was a five star breakfast, really. <laughs> um, and the meals at the conference, can I tell you, probably the best conference meals I've ever had. So um, great, great organization. Sayedna. Thank you. Well, you know, we when I always hold these um, symposia, we always try to make sure that all of our guests and speakers are, are comfortable and happy and uh, uh, it was a wonderful occasion. So uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, graduation, your PhD uh, journey and how you found it briefly. Yeah, briefly. Um, it was quite long, um, as you indicated in your in your introduction, but uh, and it was quite a journey. Um, from kind of beginning uh, to developing the dissertation project um, and many great kind of stories, um, good one, good and bad memories and bad memories to, to be frank. Uh, but uh, along the way, I've been able to meet really great scholars uh, like Dr. Michael Ecledios here. Um, and it's, it's really great to, to be done and start a new chapter. Wonderful. Well, congratulations, and it's lovely to, uh, lovely to have you with us today. And Dr. Michael, welcome, and uh, tell us a little bit about your interesting coffee mug. Mine says Coffee with Bishop Surreal with our logo, a podcast for all things Coptic. Um, tell us about your, your coffee mug and a little bit about your PhD journey. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Sayedna. It's my sincere pleasure to be here. And um, I uh, recently got this mug. Uh, it says uh, PH done um, with a short description of my dissertation on the back. Um, my colleague in the Coptic Canadian History Project, Murray Phillips, uh, sent it to me as a graduation present. And um, uh, it's wonderful. I, I love the um, the souvenir and uh, the pun of PH Dunn. Um, <laughs> um, and I, I think that sums up my, my PhD experience. Great friends uh, and colleagues like Candace, like Marie, and many others um, who really inspire me. And uh, I feel that we work towards a similar purpose to elevate the voice of Coptic Orthodox Christians all over the world. Um, and for me, um, the PhD was a, a long commitment, as you know, Sayedna, um, and uh, it's been six years of studying, researching all over Egypt and North America, and long days of writing in uh, solitude. Um, but throughout that whole process, my family and my friends have been my comfort, and it's um, something I feel truly blessed about, to, to have people around me that, that helped me up throughout the whole process. Well, certainly both of you have been a great inspiration, and I hope um, that you will encourage many more young Copts to think about continuing further study and research uh, all the way to PhD. Um, and I'm very interested today to hear what you have to say uh, about this interesting topic that we will discuss together. So thanks to both of you for those introductions. So to start with, let me give you a little background about my two guests. Dr. Candice Lukasik is a postdoctoral research associate 
at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis in Missouri. She earned her PhD in Socio-Cultural Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley, a place that I have visited a couple of years ago, and was the inaugural fellow in Coptic Orthodox Studies at the Orthodox Christian Studies Center at Fordham University, where I completed my PhD, so something very dear to my heart. Based on 15 months of ethnographic fieldwork between Egypt and the United States, her first book project explores the transnational circulation of political subjectivities and religious practices through the lens of Coptic Orthodox Christian emigration. Specifically, the project examines the geopolitical processes involved in the transformation of Middle Eastern Christians into modern-day martyrs and victims of Islamic terror by American religious and political actors, and investigates the effects those processes have on the Copts in Egypt and in the diaspora. For this project, she has received the Religion, Spirituality, and Democratic Renewal Fellowship for 2020 and 2021, funded by the Social Science Research Council and the FETSA Institute, as well as funding from the Louisville Institute, the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and UC Berkeley's Institute for International Studies and Center for Middle Eastern Studies. She also holds a BA in Political Science and International Relations from Canisius College and the Master of Arts in Arab Studies from the Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies Department of Columbia University. In addition to academic scholarship, she has written opinion editorials and short-form essays for Anthropology News, Public Orthodoxy, the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, and the Coptic Canadian History Project, CCHP and is a curator for new directions in the anthropology of Christianity. Between 2019 and 2022, she will be a participant in Fordham University's Orthodox Christian Studies Center project on orthodoxy and human rights funded by the Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. That is quite an achievement, Candace, and I can only imagine what you will achieve in the next 10 years and beyond. Well done, and congratulations on this fine achievement. My second guest, Dr. Michael Akladios, is founder and project manager of the Coptic Canadian History Project, CCHP. The CCHP is a community archival and public history initiative affiliated with the Clara Thomas Archives and Special Collection at York University. Nominated for the Dean's Dissertation Prize, his research centers the Copts in Modern Egyptian History 
and highlights their distinctiveness in relation to diverse immigrants arriving to Canada and the United States following the Second World War. He earned his PhD in history from York University, Toronto. His doctoral research was supported by several competitive scholarships, including the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Doctoral Award and the A.V. Bennett Historica Can Canada Dissertation Scholarship. His first book project is entitled Ordinary Copts, Ecumenism, Activism, and Belonging in North American Cities, 1954-1992. In it, he argues that urban Copts integrated in Toronto, Montreal, and the New York and New Jersey area in two distinct ways, either choosing a two-way process of acculturation or cautious adaptation which best preserve their ethnic and religious particularity. Their settlement, social relations, and lay initiatives were a part of an adaptive process that drew on past experience in modern Egypt and the demands of their new environments. Michael has written editorials with Active History, Mada Masr, and Public Orthodoxy. His latest peer-reviewed article, Heteroglossia, Interpretation and the Experiences of Coptic Immigrants from Egypt in North America, 1955-1975, to will be published in the November 2020 issue of Social History. Michael, I am honored that you are also with us today, and it is always a joy to see young scholars achieve such accolades that can be an inspiration to so many others out there. So welcome to both of you, and uh, maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about these two book projects and when uh, you hope to publish and who they will be published through, if you have that uh, information, uh, Dr. Michael and Dr. Candice, if you can share that with us before we take a short break. Dr. Uh, Michael. Well, I, um, I am uh, currently revising my dissertation for publication, and um, uh, I'm, I'm very excited um, to prepare uh, proposals for several um, university presses, including the University of Toronto and the AUC, the American University in Cairo. Um, those are the two that I'm, I'm thinking about currently. Um, and really, the, the book um, is intended to give us um, an understanding of what migration meant to people leaving Egypt in the 50s and 60s, settling in um, Toronto and Montreal and the New York, New Jersey area. And um, it's really the one of the few uh, multipolar studies which takes three countries uh, usually a lot of the comparative studies are focused on two countries um, and so it's been a long time in the making and I really hope that um, within the next two or three years I'll be able to share it with everyone. Well we look forward to it I'll tell you an interesting story is when my Parents uh, were thinking of migrating back in 1967. Uh, my father had applied to come to Canada, 
because he was very close with his cousin who had migrated to Montreal, but the visa came for Australia first, and so <laughs> they <laughs> decided to go to Australia. And uh, Candice? Uh, yes, yeah, so over the next two years during my postdoc, I'll be revising my dissertation into a book. Um, and I think very much kind of uh, centering uh, the book uh, around cops in American society um, and also back and forth between Egypt and the United States. Um, uh, part of my field work was obviously in Upper Egypt, um, but also uh, in the New York, New Jersey area. Um, but as I've kind of revised a, a few pieces thus far over the summer, uh, it seems that uh, the American context is, is taking precedent. So for now, I'm revising over the next couple of years while I have this position at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, and I'm also considering um, a few uh, academic presses in the United States, mainly um, possibly Princeton, Duke, um, Minnesota, and UC Press. But we shall see uh, where the, the book turns towards. Wonderful. We look forward to both of those two books, and uh, uh, I'm sure that they are going to be very interesting for many people to read. So congratulations and uh, keep working hard, and we look forward to seeing those two publications. So let us take a short break, and we'll be right back. So our conversation today rotates around Coptic immigration to the USA and Canada. Copts began immigrating to the US as early as the late 1940s. After 1952, the rate of Coptic immigration from Egypt to Canada and the United States increased. Immigration to Canada outpaced the US until the inauguration of more lenient procedures in 1965. In general, Coptic immigration rose steadily throughout North America, Europe, and Australia in the coming decades. We see a further influx of Copts to the US and Canada after the 2011 revolution in Egypt, fleeing instability and violence there. With hundreds of Coptic Orthodox churches in the United States alone, along with over 90 congregations in Canada, it is estimated that there are over 1 million Coptic Orthodox Christians in North America. While the Coptic Orthodox form a larger number in the U.S., the first Coptic Orthodox parish in North America was actually founded in Canada. In 1964, St. Mark's Parish in Toronto, Canada was established, and uh, in fact, Father Mor Osmoros, who um, is still at this parish, uh, was the one who established uh, the ministry there in Canada. However, not too long afterwards, the first parish in the States, St. Mark's Jersey City, was founded in the late 1960s, and it is considered the first Coptic Orthodox Church parish and church building in North America, if not the Western Hemisphere. In an Anthropology News article, Dr. Lukasik states, 
ISIS's specific targeting of the Copts coincided with an increasing transnational interest in the plight of Christians globally. The Trump administration has focused policy on aiding persecuted Middle Eastern Christians, and the Copts have figured prominently in such initiatives, she says. No doubt this was heightened after the burning of many churches after the revolution and the beheading of the 21 in Libya. Dr. Lukasi continues to say many Americans... Coptic Americans included, have interpreted increased immigration to the United States a result of persecution in Egypt. Yet many Copts apply for the lottery because of both discrimination against them as a minority group and growing socioeconomic precarity, particularly in Egypt's rural, rural parts, end quote. Perhaps Dr. Lukasi can elaborate on which of these two factors dominate the decision of Copts to immigrate here. In a New York Times article in May of 1977, at the end of Pope Shenouda III's first visit to the United States, it tells us this. Like waves of earlier immigrants, they, the Copts that is, have encountered mixed blessings on these shores, economic security accompanied by the perils of assimilation, end quote. And perhaps Dr. Cladius can speak to this issue of economic security versus the perils of assimilation and how have the Copts fared in this arena. Coptic immigration has so many facets to it, and we obviously cannot cover everything in one episode, but we will discuss some important aspects today. So to, st to start with, Candice, if you could start with some introductory brief comments and perhaps addressing the factors uh, mentioned in your article. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I think that uh, the juxtaposition between, you know, kind of the push factors in Egypt and uh, kind of the context by which cops um, enter in the United States and Canada um, is, is particularly important here. Um, and so from the Egyptian side of things, so my work uh, focused on um, entrance into the green card lottery, as well as asylum seekers from Egypt, and those that come to the United States through family reunification visas. Um, and so in terms of the green card lottery, and I worked in uh, a village in Upper Egypt near Negahamedi, um, many folks that would come into these um, kind of church uh, computer centers uh, to enter into the green card lottery um, voiced both their concern about their position in Egyptian society as Christians, um, the kind of discriminations that they face. Um, so, for example, uh, one father um, said that, you know, he's applying to Green Card Lottery every year because um, his son, for, you know, uh, uh, somebody who is taking the um, kind of secondary exam um, that year uh, would be discriminated against um, if he went to medical school because of his last name, because of his name. Um, and he said, you know, I want a better life for, for my children in the United States because they won't be discriminated against because they're Christian. But at the same time, um, he also noted that 
there um, is less and less work for him and he's making less and less money. So I don't think that there's one particular factor. And I also wouldn't say that um, fleeing is the particular term to use. Um, I think that uh, immigrating to the U.S. and elsewhere takes a lot of procedural of um, power um, and patience as well. Uh, applying to the green card lottery and um, asylum seeking, uh, you know, takes years um, sometimes. Uh, and so um, a lot of these um, forms of immigration to the U.S. Um, are much more time consuming, much more complicated than a single narrative um, that we can offer. And do you think um, that with the immigration, is it more coming from Upper Egypt in the south or more people from the north in Cairo and Alexandria and so on? So for right now, um, I would say given, uh, at least from my research um, in the New York, New Jersey area, as well as in Los Angeles, and a uh, very, very short trip to Nashville, um, Tennessee, I will say that the majority of, uh, of migrants post-2011 um, have been from uh, much more kind of smaller uh, villages um, in Upper Egypt and, and in Egypt's rural parts more generally. Um, and this became a particular issue in the New York, New Jersey area in different parishes, right, um, where they have uh, immigrants mainly from Cairo, Alexandria, bigger cities, um, that then had to interface with, with folks um, from Egypt that they maybe, you know, never, uh, you know, uh, spoke with uh, while they were there or visited some of these villages or even knew the names of some of these villages. I mean, <laughs> in one of the parishes that I worked in, you know, some of them would be like, I didn't even know this village existed. Yeah. Um, and so uh, definitely a different geographic, uh, 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 you know, uh, divide as well as cultural divide um, that has been experienced in different parishes throughout the United States since 2011. Yeah, so that, you know, would be some interesting dynamics that would be happening in some of these parishes uh, across North America and maybe some uh, conflicts or uh, clashes that may be happening happening because, you know, north of uh, Egypt and the south, uh, you know, almost two different worlds. So it'd be interesting, you know, if some of this is going to come out in your research and in your books. But the other thing that I would think about there is, um, do you have any analysis of why more people have been accepted from the south rather than from the north of Egypt? That's an incredibly important question, Saidna, and actually one that I encountered a number of times uh, from folks both uh, in the United States and in Egypt. And so kind of the assumption being, uh, or what is made implicit by that question, is that there is kind of a targeting of you no know, particular groups of people, uh, Coptic folks from Egypt's rural parts, and especially in Upper Egypt. And uh, not only did I interview, you know, migrants, but I also, you know, spoke with embassy officials, uh, folks that work on the green card lottery uh -huh. uh, um, at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. And, uh, you know, obviously their their focus is really on the fact that this lottery is a lottery. It's random. Uh, and so if you think about it that way, um, there are more people uh, from different areas of Egypt that are applying than in Cairo or Alexandria. 
um, in terms of the proportion of the population, right. right? And so if an entire village is being entered into the green card lottery, there's going to be a higher proportion of folks that are chosen from that given village. Right. I mean, I've heard a number of stories where, um, you know, priests will in different villages will enter their entire congregation uh, without them knowing uh, into the lottery, uh, and then they are chosen without uh, having ever known that they had applied. So you know there are there are stories like that. Very interesting. Well, thank you for that. And Michael, I'm interested um, in your views about economic security versus the perils of assimilation for Copts after half a century of immigration. Uh, absolutely, that that's a very intriguing and, and necessary question, Sayedna. I um, uh, I think I would want to look back at the historical trajectory and and define these two concepts at the heart of the question. Um, in in looking at this issue of economic security uh, and looking at the migrants who arrived in the fifties and sixties and into the seventies, really um, better job prospects. Um, uh, giving a chance to build security and to um, get married and to raise a family and provide for children opportunities to grow and, and be educated uh, in new technologies and, and to build lives for themselves. That was a very important push factor, uh, encouraging emigration out of Egypt. Um, and um, it was facilitated a lot of the times by the, the, the larger context, how um, uh, Canada and Australia, especially uh, in the 1950s, were pushing to get uh, immigrants from Egypt. And this is not just cops, but also including uh, other minority groups, uh, such as uh, Jews, Armenians, uh, Italians, and Greeks. Um, and uh, this might interest you, uh, Your Grace. Um, uh, it's a very fascinating uh, little tidbit that came up in my research about how um, at the start of the Canadian immigration mission uh, following uh, the 1956 Suez crisis, uh, it was really competition from Australia that encouraged Canada to develop its first um, fully formed immigration program by the late 1950s. Um, and the Canadian uh, officials in the embassy in Cairo would often complain about how these Australians are going door to door and stealing the best qualified. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Very and uh, um, it, it was these kinds of contacts that the immigrants from Egypt were seen to be uh, well-educated, they were seen to be affluent, they were seen to provide um, a good source of um, uh, capital cases or people with the necessary skills and money to come and benefit Canada and the United States. Um, and so... When these immigrants first arrived in the 1950s, many of them actually had no intention of settling permanently. Many of them arrived on J-1 five-year visas for uh, cultural exchange programs or to continue their education in graduate studies. Um, and then things changed in, in Egypt. Uh, in the quasi-socialist turn in the early 1960s under Nasser, um, the nationalization of the Coptic hospital and Coptic schools, um, really, uh, it, it made sense to then stay in uh, Canadian and U.S. cities and build careers and uh, return to marry and, and, and build families. Um, and um, really, the early churches and the early institutional development um, owes a great deal to uh, the activities of uh, His Grace Bishop, Bishop Samuel, 
uh, yes. Repose to the Lord in October 1981. Um, it was under his impetus that the first uh, association, the Coptic Association of America, was formed, that brought together many Copts. Uh, it was through their work that Father Marcos came to North America and settled in Toronto, um, and also uh, Father Robert who started St. Mark's Parish in, in, uh, in New Jersey. Yeah. And um, uh, so the economic motivations were definitely very prominent. And I think going into early, the early 80s, we see how prominent the economic motivations are to build economic stability and, and provide for family. Um, at the same time, a lot of immigrants have to balance the fear of, of assimilation, the fear of um, losing what makes them unique and distinctive as they uh, enter into these new environments and go to work and send their children to school and all of these things. Um, but an interesting thing that, that came up in, in much of my research is that cops did not uh, become assimilated. In, in many ways, um, uh, assimilation was a fear, but um, it's, uh, it was more a fear than a reality. Uh, and um, uh, this is because uh, no immigrant group is one whole thing, complete in itself and unchanging. Uh, and no society is really easily capable of assimilating an entire ethnic group as if it was null and vo void of particularity. The Copts prize their ethnic and, and religious particularity. Um, and uh, to just uh, give an, an an example and something that for me personally encapsulates this um, community uh, Coptic immigrant and, and church activist Dr. Faik Ishak, uh, former professor of English literature at Lakehead University. Yes. Um, in a 1983 article published with Coptologia, an Ontario Coptic community journal, uh, he wrote that, and I, and I quote here, the world in which the Coptic immigrants are living and the social milieu in which they are gradually incorporated are neither purely Coptic nor purely North American. Its roots are embedded in the ancient past, but its stems are budding in the new milieu. The old tradition keeps it lively, the new setting adds a fresh perspective, and the whole combination or the whole complex structure has its own uniqueness and attraction." End quote. And it's for these reasons that, while, although assimilation can be a prominent fear amongst immig uh, immigrants, especially new arrivals. I, in my research, use the terms acculturation and adaptation because it's a two-way process where you are contributing as much as you are learning and integrating. Uh, and we can think of it in, in, uh, in Egyptian terms. Um, uh, you don't get stuck in a one-way road. You have a two-way traffic. Um, and um, in, in that sense, um, I, I like to think of um, associations such as the Coptic Association of America or even the Egyptian Canadian Club in Toronto, uh, which created a place to celebrate their cultural traditions, listen to Arabic music, movies, and theatrical performances. And even the church in time as it expanded and there were new clergy and new buildings all over the continent provided services for all age groups and created community institutions, vital institutions, to bring people together. Um, and so I just want to end off with um, my favorite memory of when I came here with my parents as a young boy, 
um, of the St. Mark's Bazaar that's held annually in St. Mark's Church in Toronto, uh, which uh, is a is not only a celebration for co-ops, but it's a way to outreach to the surrounding community and introduce them to uh, what makes co-ops distinctive. And I think that captures that dynamic um, much more than um, uh, uh, the fears of the perils of assimilation. Yeah, I, that leaves a, a, a lot of food for thought. And, uh, you know, uh, another thing that we could talk about uh, is, you know, how is marriage um, between young Copts in North America, are they marrying within uh, the Coptic community or what percentages are marrying outside of the Coptic community this week? Uh, uh, Archbishop uh, Pil- uh, his name is very difficult to say, the Greek Archbishop of uh, North America was giving a lecture at Fordham University and he said that now it is about 67% uh, of Greek Orthodox people that are marrying um, uh, what he's calling now ecumenical marriages. So it'll be interesting to see in the future, you know, uh, or it could be another episode all on its own about discussing um, uh, marriage and uh, how this may affect assimilation as well in North America. But let us now uh, delve a little deeper in our conversation with some more interesting questions. So... um, can you talk a little bit about the generational differences in the United States and Canada? Anyone would like to begin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess uh, if it's okay, I can give a historical perspective and then Candace can take over. Um, so I, I just want to start by, uh, as uh, to follow up on the previous response, um, we had the initial wave of migrants Uh, coming to the U.S. and Canada, and really the U.S. um, uh, until uh, 1965, and especially in the later 60s, um, Egyptians were going to the U.S. through connections to American industry and to um, uh, academia. And so many of the early immigrants were um, quite... um, were professional immigrants, were uh, very educated, were uh, quite um, uh, invested in in building churches and and in the Sunday school movement before they emigrated. Um, And uh, in Canada, uh, you had a lot more uh, family, uh, immigrants arriving as families in Montreal and Toronto, which really were the two major centers in Canada um, throughout this early period. and as the community developed institutions uh, and um, the immigration policies in Canada and the U.S. began to become more, more lenient, um, uh, we have um, a shift in the mid-1970s, especially following the Yom Kippur War and, and the increasing violence uh, under Sadat and uh, the economic uh, precarity of, of many people, um, uh, changing demographics slightly with um, more lower middle class, working class um, Copts and Muslim Egyptians emigrating to uh, many North American cities. And um, uh, really it was the, the community institutions that helped to bring people together. Um, and um, these differences kind of continue 
and and become uh, somewhat problematic in, in creating divisions and tensions uh, in uh, the churches, uh, especially around issues of um, economic uh, power and, and language proficiency. Uh, but although there were divisions, one thing that I always kept coming back to in, in my research is how um, it never led to schism. And so when you look at other immigrant groups, such as the Mennonites, and you look at the Ukrainians and other immigrants to Canada and the United States, often in the history of um, uh, several Orthodox churches, and especially in American Catholicism, uh, there is this issue of trusteeism, which is division caused by lay challenges to uh, church boards and clerical authority. Yeah. Um, and it leads to schism. Uh, but uh, throughout the period that I study, up in, into the late 90s, uh, although there are divisions uh, based in, in class and in, in the timing of immigration, the experiences that they had in Egypt as, as um, um, the uh, society became much more polarized along religious lines, um, we, we don't encounter that same thing with the Copts. We don't encounter schism. Uh, and that has always really been uh, something that I found particularly intriguing and something that I plan to pursue in a future project, looking at this issue of trusteeism and how it relates to the Coptic Orthodox Church. Um, and um, I'll, I'll leave it there, let Candace continue on to uh, into the 90s. Yeah, yeah maybe before Candace begins, um, I think, you know, there, there would have certainly been lots of teething problems at the beginning of... Uh, Coptic immigration to to North America and maybe some of these people that were trustees or on boards had never been in such leadership positions before and so they had very little experience and uh, this would have certainly caused uh, issues that would be interesting uh, to see further research uh, that you you might do on that Michael. Uh, Candace? I, yeah go ahead. Oh I, I have a full chapter on that I'd love to share it with oh, you. Say okay. It. <laughs> Candice. Yes. So, um, you know, what's great about uh, Michael and I is that we work on very um, complementary um, projects and that, um, you know, from the 1990s onwards, we see um, a different group of cops, a different class of cops, a different uh, a community of cops from different, you know, geographies of Egypt come to the United States. And that's through um, in particular, the green card lottery, which is implemented in the early 90s um, and really brings to the U.S. Um, folks from Upper Egypt, from Minya, from Akut, from Negahamedi. Um, and what that does is obviously it creates different, you know, di parish dynamics. Um, and so this like slowly started to kind of uh, trickle into different parishes throughout the United States, in particular the New York, New Jersey area, which is where I did the majority of my field work. But also, um, you know, the green card lottery, also, you know, allowed for the creation and the expansion of, for example, Nashville's Coptic community. Um, Nashville's Coptic community was started um, because of a particular uh, need for employment at the Grand Old Opry Hotel. Uh, and uh, a lot of those cops came from Jersey City uh, who were seeking uh, employment in the United States after they came to the green card lottery. Um, and so there's a kind of a shift that, you know, accumulates over time. And then the 2011 revolution happened 
Um, and folks continue to apply to the green card lottery and folks continue to come to the U.S. Um, but also we see a new group of people come to the U.S. and, for example, claim asylum as well. Not to say that there weren't asylum seekers prior to this period of time, um, but the post-2011 and particularly post-2013 asylum seekers uh, are, you know, kind of a different class of folks as well. Um, and in my research, uh, not only did I work with kind of folks who came on the green card lottery uh, and were applying both in Upper Egypt and those, those that eventually came to the United States, particularly the New York, New Jersey area, but also um, I attended, you know, asylum trials um, for Coptic asylum seekers and really got to understand um, how the asylum system works in the U.S. Um, for, for cops. Uh, many of the, the people that I worked with were mainly single men um, from all over Egypt, actually, but a lot from Upper Egypt. Um, and one of the things that is not as well known is that, you know, uh, Coptic asylum seekers in the U.S. come from a variety of different uh, geographies, not just in Egypt, um, but also come from the Gulf um, and other locations as well. Uh, and... You know, to apply for asylum, it requires um, a lot of a lot of funding uh, for that uh, too. So um, that's all to say that you know, from the 1990s onwards, we see a different kind of uh, class of cops come to the United States, which creates particular uh, conflicts in different parishes. Um, I will mention this uh, as as my final comment to to, to this question um, is that you know, post 2011. Uh, in a place like Jersey City, we see an enormous influx of folks from uh, very rural parts of Upper Egypt. Uh, and in different parishes, um, this produced a lot of pressure uh, on the, uh, the life of the parish. Um, so much so that um, in different parishes, there's different liturgies, uh, you know, some in English for the second generation, some in Arabic and those are mainly folks from Cairo and Alexandria. And then you'll have another liturgy that is denoted as the children's liturgy because a lot of these families that come from Upper Egypt have many children. Um, and so you see kind of a, a spatial divide in the parish um, as well uh, that indicates kind of not only class divisions, um, but also cultural division. Uh, and you know, this has produced conflict, but also cooperation uh, in different parishes. Um, and I'll leave, it, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, well, I think uh, what, what you just said, you know, has made many of these parishes that have had this influx from various parts of Egypt to rethink a lot of their ministry and how they are serving all of these different groups with all of their different needs and as you said, this would put a huge strain on these parishes um, and also financial strain because a lot of these people come, you know, from poverty or, you know, don't have a job yet. And so it's putting all these different pressures uh, on our parishes all across North America, but obviously in particular regions like in Jersey City, you know, you, you go into Jersey City and you think you're in Shobra or something like this, or one of the popular Coptic suburbs, or, you know, I haven't been to Nashville, but I've heard so many things from Bishop Yusuf about the dynamics 
that, that are going on there. It's all very fascinating. So uh, I think we have a, a couple of more questions that we, we want to go through briefly. Um, how have American cops spoken about the U.S. immigration debate? And can you describe this divide? Is it generational or is it based on, on class? Yes, so um, again, I suppose I'll start with the history. <laughs> um, I, um, in looking at the, the early Copts who arrived here in, in the 50s and, and 60s, um, uh, we often see the, the role of um, the ecumenical movement, which was ascendant in, in the global 1960s and how um, really uh, Copts who uh, arrived in, in interacted with many um, Anglo-American uh, and, and Anglo-Canadian um, Protestants and, and uh, visited the churches and became very invested in outreach and teaching the surrounding uh, society about, about their faith and culture. And they were received quite uh, well because of that fervor for ecumenical um, relations and, and uh, unity of, of services. And it was really that early um, uh, interaction and that that sense of belonging um, in a Christian uh, North American environment um, that was quite formative in um, um, in 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 bringing cops into um, this language around um, uh, group recognition uh, and this language around um, multiculturalism and contributions to the surrounding society. Uh, and in looking at the U.S. context, we can talk about the influence of the notion of the American dream and this idea of the by the bootstraps narrative of the immigrant bringing themselves um, to a new country and building their lives and, and, and finding success. And that formative period really has had a lot of influence in looking at how generational divides in North American parishes uh, between uh, the earlier arrivals and later arrivals, also between first generation and second generation, and how they speak about the immigration debate today. Um, and it is, um, of course, generational, and it is also class in looking at how affluence and um, access to resources can insulate someone, insulate a family from uh, interacting with a broader array of um, communities. Um, and this brings me to something that I believe unites generation and class in that when we look at um, when we look at this uh, issue of um, com finding commonalities and exposure to surrounding communities, which interaction tears down um, preconceived notions of difference and it really helps you to understand the person that you meet every day. Uh, and coming back to uh, uh, Shobra, as, as Sayedna said, uh, <laughs> when we look at Shobra and we see how Copts and, um, and Muslim Egyptians interact on the streets and the kinds of memories that are shared when we speak of um, uh, the, the history of Shobra, um, as opposed to areas in Egypt with either no or very little Coptic population, and how that sense of distance really affects um, um, relations between uh, people of different faiths or, or different groups. 
Um, and so in, in, in looking at these issues, generation and class matter, but also exposure, how much we are willing to, um, to interact with and create common bonds with diverse communities and, and create uh, an understanding of those around us and really impact our own self-understanding in relation to those around us. Thank you so much for that, um, uh, Candice. Yeah, I'll, I'll just briefly say that um, I think uh, in terms of the U.S. immigration debate, you know, I've heard uh, a number of times from, you know, different communities of cops throughout the United States that, yes, the burden of um, the quote unquote burden of, of the influx after 2011 uh, really made them want to uh, support reform of the green card lottery or the elimination of the green card lottery. Um, that's, you know, uh, one distinct thing I can say. But, you know, I've, I've encountered other uh, moments, other interactions whereby um, you wouldn't necessarily uh, think that uh, a person of, for example, the working class would support immigration reform um, in terms of the fact that they came to the United States in the green card lottery uh, and, uh, or asylum, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, as Michael indicated before, uh, cops are not, you know, a homogenous group, and they're quite diverse, not only generationally, class-wise, et cetera. Um, you know, one of the things that I would say vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, you know, thinking about, for example, uh, Trump's Muslim ban, uh, I've had a number of working-class cops who say that they support something uh, like that for example, um, and that would also affect, uh, you know, Coptic immigrants too. And so there's a, a lot of the ways that, you know, when we think about the immigration debate, it's very ambiguous. You know, cops have different, varying different perspectives. Um, and so I would say that that's one thing. And But the other thing also being that the church in the U.S. has also tried to accommodate this kind of generational divide and really kind of think about their position within the immigration debate. And I'll leave with just, you know, one example from the LA diocese, um, which I'm sure that, you know, quite well, um, said, uh, and, you know, after 2011, the creation of both, you know, a diocesan head for social services and for education, theological education, and by Abraham and Amba Krolos, indicates how, uh, the 2011 revolution has impacted upon the structure of the church uh, too, um, and thinking about immigration to the United States. Mm, most definitely. Um, we'll take a, a short break and we'll be back. We have one more question, which is very dear to my heart. So my final question is um, about why or how has theological education become central to those among some in the second generation in the U.S. and Canada? So any of you would like to tackle that question? Yes. It, uh, Candice, please. Go. Well, I just want to say that so this, this particular question is you know, close to my heart in that um, you know, I'm, I'm very much engaged in the current movement for theological education in, in, in the Coptic Church in the United States, between the United States and Egypt. Um, and one of the things that I do want to say is that it's, it's quite clear that 
while this is a movement that has, you know, occurred through through throughout the decades, uh, you know, especially after 2011, with the influx of new immigrants, we see that are challenging kind of local parish culture, but also kind of understandings of faith. Um, we see a push for, you know, theological education in our churches. Um, and also kind of a separation in many ways, thinking about the kind of American Coptic experience vis-a-vis a kind of a traditional, um, quote-unquote, ethnic parish. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I just wanted to point out um, within this push for theological education is also uh, its connection to American Christianity writ large and thinking about the push for evidence of your faith, apologetic knowledge. Um, one of the things that an interlocutor noted to me that, uh, you know, is quite poignant is that um, in Egypt, you're either Amina or an Ahmed, right? Uh, but when you come to the United States, you have to actively believe, this is what they said, actively believe in your faith. Um, and it's about faith uh, vis-a-vis kind of versus uh, an ethos of, uh, of Coptic identity in Egypt, this person uh, noted. So, that kind of gives you an indication as to what the importance of theological education is for, for many in the second as well as first generation in the U.S. That's very interesting. Thank you for that. And Michael? Yes, I, um, I, I want to approach this um, issue of, of theological education from the perspective of actually a, a long-running conversation in immigration studies. Um, one, one might even say a debate uh, of uh, the concept of ethnic revival. Uh, and common among many immigrant groups, so here we can think of um, the Italians, Eastern European Jewish populations in, in Canada and the United States, there's a pattern of the second generation seeking a return to their roots. Mm-hmm. And this may take the form of a physical return or a keenness to explore the history and heritage of their culture and faith practices, or both. Um, approaching the turn to theological education from this perspective actually allows us to appreciate the broader significance and and the immediacy for many people uh, of this trajectory and how it can provide young cops uh, not only knowledge and spiritual fulfillment but also a sense of wholeness as their identity is forged over time in, in new environments yeah most definitely i think also with this, with the second generation as you said uh, returning to their roots but also a way of maintaining their identity um, and maybe we'll speak a little bit more with Candice in a future episode about a, a little bit more about that. But thank you so much for both of you for these wonderful insights. And indeed, thank you uh, to my two delightful guests, Dr. Candice Lukasik and Dr. Michael Akladios, for your insights on this important subject of Coptic immigration to the United States and Canada. I'm sure the discussion does not end here and will continue. And perhaps on another occasion, we can look at some more aspects of this. As you can see, that this has been a fascinating discussion into Coptic immigration for the past half a century to the United States and Canada. Much has happened in the past 50 years, and no one would have imagined back in the 1960s where we are as a Coptic community today. I believe that deeper academic research is required to analyze this past period from many aspects, including religious, social, educational, economic, 
and general impact of Coptic immigration, if any, on American and Canadian society. Will the future generation of American and Canadian Copts have the same affinity to the Coptic Church of Egypt? Will they maintain Coptic identity, and how so? What matters are cultural and can be developed to suit the society we live in without compromising the faith. There are so many questions still unanswered, and I leave you to ponder upon. I ask you all to pray with me this week that the Lord Jesus Christ preserve his Coptic Church and her people in the United States and Canada, that they continue to keep the faith that was handed down once and for all to the apostles and delivered to us faithfully, that each generation in North America can continue the tradition and faith of the church and to teach it faithfully to their children. Until next week, stay safe and well and be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Be sure to tune in next week when His Grace will be joined again by Dr. Candice Lukasik to discuss Copts and Race in America. Don't miss out on this stimulating conversation over a cup of coffee. To join the conversation, please visit our website, coffeewithbishopsuriel.org. After you listen, you can really help out by rating the show. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Bishop Suriel a podcast for all things Coptic. To join the conversation, please visit our website, coffeewithbishopsoriel.org. And always remember, the best way to start any morning is with God and a cup of coffee.